Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Fantastic to have you along on a Friday afternoon, uh, not too far from the end of the year. How's uh, life been treating you? Uh, are you excited about potentially having a break over Christmas? Um, well, it's been a great year. Um, and then for the business, um, we've, we're just about to onboard with a, with a very large client and um, they have operations in the Northern Hemisphere. So I'm fully expecting us to be working through uh, January and um, we'll have a couple of days off of Christmas and New Year's. But um, yeah, the North Americans and uh, don't really take much at Christmas time. So I'm fully anticipating to be busy through that time. Aha, uh-huh. very good. Well, uh, I suppose uh, you've just got to take the opportunities to have a break where you can. I know for my own business in recruitment, normally Christmas is a quieter time for us, but the last few years, it's been incredibly busy. Anyway, so Darren, um, why don't we just start, just share us, uh, share with us, you know, what you're doing professionally at the moment. Certainly. So um, the the business is called I2I Global, and um, we work with Indigenous professionals and and we use them in deployment on contracts for clients. Um, you, you know, for us, it can you know, go through a broad range of consultations and 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 then inputs. But usually, we step in with the traditional owners on any one of those engagements. So our our clients are Indigenous peoples predominantly. Uh, we do a lot of stakeholder engagement. And for me, my responsibility is the CEO and the company's been growing and we've been adding capabilities, adding clients. And so as the CEO, I'm, I'm responsible for supporting the team and then being able to support clients and, and be able to, to build the company. And I note from looking at your website, you know, the the spectrum of services that you offer is very broad. Um, can you give us a sort of a sense of, you know, uh, the different ways that you're assisting these Indigenous communities? Yeah, so that's the common thread. So the capabilities are broad, yes, that's true, but the common thread that ties it all together is that we're we're predominantly acting on the interest of traditional owners. Um, so, and that can be a little bit different in different places. So in some ways it is Indigenous communities, but not so much. In other ways, it is Indigenous businesses and Indigenous companies. Um, sometimes it's indigenous business owners, so it's a, it's an individual or an entrepreneur. And then the other prospect is that we are engaged by a, a non-indigenous partner, but to lead and to support their engagement with indigenous interests. So, um, and again, that would usually have a, a a very prescribed set of stakeholders or indigenous interests. So, for example, it could be a a mining company that's wanting to. Uh, work in a particular area and needs to ensure that um, the community are supportive and on board and and it's a win-win situation for everyone. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a very true situation. So in the past, I think people may have heard about reconciliation and reconciliation reconciliation action plans. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we yeah, you know, when we end up with a situation like the one you've just described, we we find ourselves very much leaning into what are the commercial opportunities, 
how do we support those Indigenous interests at that at that particular site or in that particular location to capture more of the benefit of having that economic development on country. Um, there is also a dimension where we might be supporting traditional owners as they look to uphold their cultural and their cultural heritage responsibilities uh, with a proponent and a proponent's gone, hey, we need to sort out our Indigenous engagement. And so we will look to support the traditional owners as they look to fulfill their cultural obligations. And and then the, the third possibility is then we look at the, at the development itself and we say, hang on, is this a catalyst within a regional economy? Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's where some of the biggest opportunities we, we find. Uh, here's one project in isolation, but if you plug it into a regional economy, then you go, hang on, this is a catalyst for further development. Mm. Fantastic. And you mentioned that you've just uh, secured a substantive new client. So if it's not commercially sensitive, can you talk a bit more about that as an example of what you do? Well, I can't say who they are, but I, I can say what they've asked us to do and where. So um, it, it's a global client and they have operations in three continents, in North America, South America, and Australia. And the part they've asked us to work with them on is they are shifting from a standard whereby they used to look at the impacts of their work and they used to account and and then address what were going to be the perceived impacts of of their 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 work and they've shifted now to a, a rights-based approach where they're saying okay indigenous peoples now have acknowledged rights and we now need to conduct our business in a way that is consistent with and upholds those indigenous rights so um, it's a substantial shift for the company and, and because they're a big company, they're very much at that place where having the support of, of a firm like us will help them with their internal change. And it will also help with the new projects that are coming in because you know, there's always new work coming in uh, for, for them to have a trusted advisor to be able to work with their people on the ground and then to work with their Indigenous interests around that project to make sure they get it right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned they're a North American business. So when they engage with you, is it purely to consult around their Australian uh, operations or do you have a global mandate there? No, we have a global mandate. And um, this is why it's it's, uh, it's such a significant uh, client for us. Um, Mm. So we have worked in the international development space uh, internationally. Uh, we've worked uh, yeah, in that space from our very beginning. We have worked in in Latin America. We've worked in, in Panama and Chile and Peru. And so there are very few Indigenous companies around that, that have that commercial experience internationally. Um, and then for this client, they have sizable uh, activities in Australia, and they really do need to make sure that um, they're they're best prepared, and their staff and their team and their management are, are best equipped to be able to do this in, in an authentic way. Right. One of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because I think it's fantastic to hear these stories of Australian businesses that are really competing on the world stage and and doing it so well, and yet you know, almost fly under the radar locally. So how, how does it, how does an opportunity like that come to you, Darren? Um, well, we, we, we did have a relationship with a couple of key people and, um, 
you know, they started with a small engagement with us and, you know, this very large engagement has grown off the back of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, our business, um, you know, it, it's in the, it's in the name. So it's, it's eye to eye global. <laughs> and we've been working with, with clients like the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade for many years. Um, we really have looked to pioneer those opportunities with Indigenous to Indigenous engagement in the Indo-Pacific. Um, and so when you start operating in in that space, you know, you, you start to mingle and meet with, with potential clients, but you also become alive to opportunities. And, uh, you know, it's very much, it's, it's an industry base. And like any other industry, you kind of you, you you see work coming or you see opportunities and with your people, you start to identify how, how you can seize those opportunities to grow the company. So yeah, it's it's been a very familiar in that regard. Great. All right. Well, let's come back a little bit to eye to, uh, to, eye, to eye later in the conversation, but uh, you know, I'd be interested in sort of hearing how all of this unfolded you for you professionally. So take us back to, uh, you know, where you were born and mum and dad and, uh, you know yep. how your how your career sort of started to unfold. Well, uh, so uh, notwithstanding the grey beard and and my <laughs> choice of a, a short haircut, <laughs> uh, uh, you're you're amongst friends there, Darren. <laughs> I um, so I'm I'm 53 years of age, and um, yeah, for me, um, yeah, my kind of story begins in a place called Mount Isa in far north Queensland. Mm-hmm. So in northwestern Queensland, and um, my uh, yeah, my father was a boilermaker, and he worked in the mines. And um, yeah, my mum was a stay-at-home mum for 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 most of uh, for much of her life, um, but then went out to work. And um, it's on my mum's side of the family that uh, I have Aboriginal uh, heritage and identify and with that side of, of the family. And that traces right back through to my grandmother, to the Cocoberran peoples, um, which are also on Cape York. So even though I was born and raised on Kalkadoon country, I'm a descendant of the Cocoberran peoples from over on Cape York. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kind of my, where I am today in my professional life is very different to where I started. Um, and I, I, I was the first in mum's family. I was first in the Murray side of the family to finish high school. And that's not because I was particularly smart, but that was because um, it was even with my mother's generation that um, Indigenous uh, children were were discouraged from going to school and were not encouraged to to pursue post-secondary education. So um, as soon as as mum was of that, I think it was, that minimum age was 15 or 16 was the, or was the, uh, mandatory time to go to school. As soon as she got to that, her and a lot of the uh, you know, kind of Aboriginal friends and, and family were basically told they didn't have to go to school anymore at, by the school. And, um, so my, my mum had very much a, a different a focus, a very much a commitment to education. And she impressed upon me the value of education and, and they made life choices. My mum and dad made life choices uh, with our family to make sure that my sister and I both um, got access to high quality education and then uh, very much encouraged us post post high school and secondary. So the, the 
the journey for me around business and, and enterprise um, kind of follows after a, a stretch in my professional life where I was working in the public sector, always working with Indigenous interests throughout, and then got an invitation to work with Indigenous interests uh, with my own people around sustainable development. And um, at that time, we were charged with the task of creating an alternative source of development uh, to the public sector. And so around me, I, I had several Indigenous leaders that had the foresight to recognise that we needed a greater private sector activity with Indigenous interests. And Indigenous interests, as we resumed our, our, our rights around sovereignty and around self-determination, uh, would need economic development as an engine as an engine to drive that. Mm-hmm. And so so I was provided with an opportunity and then I got into in into that space. And then uh, by 2004, I I decided that it was time to get serious around that business and that commerce and that experience in in big corporations. So I took up an opportunity with a, a very large multinational media conglomerate. And um, uh, 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 and went off to work with them for eighteen months. And so, so ju- just to uh, sort of uh, uh, slow things down a little bit, Darren, because obviously a lot happened prior to that. I mean, you uh, looking at your LinkedIn profile, you were living in uh, the US, or at least doing some work in the US, and then in the UK. So, um, and yet your career started, as you said, in, in you know quite a, a different way. Um, I know that you've sort of had a very sort of sports orientation. So what, what <laughs> led, what led to these sort of, uh, big pivots, I suppose. <laughs> well, I know, um, now it is, it, this is intertwined with race and perceptions, uh, stereotypes and prejudice. So, I mean, I was, I was a, a small, I was a, in a small number of indigenous students that were in senior at, at my high school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, that was through the 80s, the 1980s, not the 1880s. <laughs> so, <laughs> it but, feels like that sometimes, though, doesn't it? <laughs> but, um, and then even when I was at, when I was at high school, uh, and I've, I've had a little bit of time to reflect on this. It, uh, so I did business studies, uh, did a, a subject at high school and, and won the school medal for, for, you know, the kind of highest achievement across that subject in senior. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, 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 not even the teacher, not, not the career guidance officer. Nobody said, Hey, you obviously got an aptitude for business. You should do commerce or you should do an MBA or yeah, you mm. should look at finance or economics. Even I didn't get that encouragement. The encouragement I got was, Oh, you're Aboriginal. You'll be good at sport. And I, I was playing basketball a lot then. So there's some truth in that, but not great, but. And then I was encouraged to go to university to do a PE teaching, uh, to, to stay involved with sport. Right. And so, you know, that was, that was just the, on stereotype. That was just, oh, indigenous kids are great at sport. So let's, let's funnel, funnel him into sport. And mm-hmm. even, even when you get the damn school medal for business, <laughs> you still don't get encouraged to go into business. So, um. So yeah, that's, that's how that, that shaped me, but obviously that aptitude and that, uh, for me, that appeal to business and commerce persisted and that returned to me later in my, in my professional life. And I made some choices around that to, to actually follow that passion. And what about the, uh, the international, uh, moves, um, 
uh, what led to all of that? That starts uh, when I when I uh, decide to go to graduate school and I decide to do my masters. Um, it turns out that the, what I was uh, I'd majored in was sports psychology, and mm-hmm. at that time I wanted to be a, a sports psychologist, still with that passion to be around sport. But um, in Australia, they didn't have any professional qualification in sports psychology at that time. You had to major as a clinical psychologist, and then you could practice. Mm-hmm. And so whilst I'd done a major in my undergraduate, you know, I wanted to do my master's and I ended up traveling on a scholarship to California and then matriculated across into Canada so I could complete my master's. So um, it's just one of those things where you just don't know what you don't know until you try it. And if I get to the end of my university studies and I go, right, I want to do postgrad. And they go, well, why don't I apply for a scholarship to go to America to do that? I mean, there's a lot of sport happening in America. That'll be great. That's <laughs> like nobody told me not to, so away I went. Right. And then, okay, great. So uh, so fast forward now back to where you were. So I think you were talking about joining Penguin. Is that right? Yeah. I actually was. Um, so the parent company is Bertelsmann AG. They're, they're a German company, private, privately owned, and um they they have a lot of media assets. So depending mm-hmm. on news limited share uh, price on any one day, then Bertelsmann is either the third or the fourth largest media company in the world. And um, you know they um, they have a publishing division which is Random House, and Random House is is the parent company and imprint. And then Random House merged with Penguin um, a few years ago, so it's, Ra- yeah, it's Penguin Random House. Uh, they also have a substantial interest in in magazine publishing in Europe, in radio and television broadcasting. Um, you know, they they have a business to business division, which basically runs all the a lot of the back end support for customer loyalty programs, and then um, fulfillment and service and maintenance programs for consumer goods and all kinds of things. I mean, they are. Uh, they are, they were a very large company at the time when I was uh, working with them. They had over 500 subsidiary companies around the world across five divisions. And um, there's, you know, it's one of those companies where you go, wow, I've never heard of them before. But then if you look at all their subsidiaries, there's very, you know, it's very rare that you haven't had an interaction with a Bertelsmann-owned company in your life, especially right. if you're in media and, and music. And you were based in London at that time or in the US still? So our, our assignment started in Germany at the at the headquarters in Westphalia. Um, so we started there and then we were, we were basically put on assignments. Um, and so my first assignment was in Shanghai and second assignment was in London. Uh, third one was in New York. Um, the fourth one was back here in Sydney. And across all of that time, we were maintaining a, another project across the whole team, and that was based in Barcelona in Spain. So, you know, very much a global experience, very much a global company. Mm-hmm. And I see also that time you were advising to the World Bank, which must have been a very um, interesting experience. Yeah, that very much continues that uh, development uh, focus, you know. that And what happened is that the World Bank, um, just prior to, and it, it was part of the reason for the invitation to to serve with them for four years is the World Bank was recognizing that for all of their ambitions and good intent, the outcomes that they had they had they had they had been a party to were, were not great. 
And so in particular around Indigenous rights, they were going hand. I mean, a lot of these big projects that we're financing in in developing world in developing countries um, are actually coming at the expense of Indigenous peoples. And so they wanted to do something different. They wanted to recognise they needed to change how they approached um, their investment decisions. And so they created a pilot uh, with five uh, projects across five different countries in the world. And then they appointed a group of advisors to, to, to basically offer support for the bank and its staff around how do we, how do we engage and how do we uphold Indigenous development objectives. And so what then uh, at that point brought you back to Australia? Because uh, uh, joining as CEO of the uh, Queensland Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Human Services Coalition, obviously um, was back in Brisbane, which I suppose, yep. you know, in comparison with your experience more recently was like coming back to a little sleepy town. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, kind of, there was family here. So that was something that, you know, that, that did very much bring me back. Uh, so, um, you know, I had a younger daughter at the time. So, you know, uh, you know, making choices, uh, to be around and to be an active father with her, you know, we're top of mind. The other thing is that, uh, the whole, the whole point of, of working with, with Bertelsmann was to actually get that experience and bring it back and apply it to, to opportunities in Australia. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's. You know, it's one of the highlights of my life to, to be able to come back and work with my own people around economic development and to apply things that I've learned in those other environments like the World Bank and with Bertelsmann. So, no, there's, um, it, it, it was, a, yeah, it was a bit of a shock, but, you know, anywhere you've got access to an airport, you can get to any of those places. Oh, for sure. And uh, just as an aside, you know, I, uh, I know many Indigenous business leaders. I've had quite a few on my podcast over the years. And one of the things that I'm always very impressed with is this um, genuine desire to give back to the community. Um, it seems that it's quite a reoccurring theme that go, learn skills, learn, uh, you know, how to add most value, but bring it back into your Indigenous communities for the benefit of all, which is um, is a fantastic thing to see. Yeah. And that, that, Broader, well, that broader commitment, uh, that sense of obligation, of community service, um, that sense of responsibility, you know, that's, um, you know, that's something that's shared by and motivates a lot of Indigenous businesses and entrepreneurs. In fact, mm -hmm. I would say it's almost, you know, it's almost all of them. Mm. So, um, and that's, you know, that's, that's for good reason, because it, you know, if you think about it, and I, I shared that it, yeah, you know, that story about my mum's experience with education and then obviously how that affected me. But we, we have to keep in mind that Indigenous families, you know, um, when we talk about statistics and, uh, you know, people see numbers, but we're actually talking about people in our families. You know? We're mm -hmm. talking about close relatives that are unfairly or, or you know, unjustly tied up in stuff with police and, and criminal matters, or we're, we're talking about people that are struggling, you know, to, 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 yeah, struggling with issues of poverty, really, to try and find ways to keep things together for their family, to, to keep, you know, keep them fed and, and clothed and, and, you know, going to school, or we've got people dealing with the you know, chronic illness, uh, yeah, and all of those things happen when you've got a large family, you, you're going to, you've got people in the family where that is their, their experience. So there's a real urgency around being able to do something to change it, to improve mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. 
And then you obviously arrived back in Brisbane, GFC hits, which uh, is right when I started my business as well. And then doing a variety of different things, being on a number of boards and and so on before joining uh, the Strongest Smarter Institute as their CEO, uh, where you were for four years. Tell us a little bit about, you know, that business. So the appeal for me there was the founder, um, Chris Sara. Um, the business had had, had made a, a, a bit of a, a seismic shift and it had moved out of the safe confines of the university mm-hmm. and then it was looking to establish itself independently. And and for me, I you know, I interrogated whether or not you know, what Chris was advocating in education was effective and you know, was it helping? And once I'd kind of got to a point where I believe that was the case, then I very much wanted to scale that, that an effort. And that, and that came from an, an ethic, uh, of care because it, it, I, it struck me that if we had this effective approach that helped indigenous kids at school and there's that education thing, but if this helped their experience of school and education, then why shouldn't we get it to every Indigenous kid? Mm-hmm. And so that was my motivation. My motivation was, yes, this works, so let's scale it so we can get to every Indigenous kid that's at every school. And so it was a turnaround. Um, it wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a straightforward thing. They had basically stepped out on their own with very little cash and and some other significant challenges about their their, their, their model and their business model. And so for me, it was an opportunity to get it on a sustainable footing and then to set up so that we could scale to, to meet uh, the demands of those schools and to get in front of as many of those Indigenous kids as, as we possibly could in as short a time as we could. So, yeah, it was an exciting time and it was a very, yeah, a very exciting episode. And then obviously from that leading into I2I, where you joined as head of strategy and then mm. stepped into the role of uh, uh, CEO. And as uh, you explained to me prior to starting the recording, you, you're now obviously an equity participant in that business. So um, what what was the initial uh, impetus to joining I2I Global? So the, the, the founding premise um, for I2I Global was the merits of having Indigenous professionals from Australia deliver contracts in international aid with other Indigenous peoples in the Indo-Pacific. Mm-hmm. So, and the company had started with some engagements in, in Papua New Guinea and Indonesia, and then um, a couple of years in, it then secured a couple of very large contracts with the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And at that point, the business needed a, you needed a CEO with experience in growing uh, sustainable businesses and, and a CEO with it, with a focus on impact. And so I fit the bill there, but, um, part of what was going on for me though, is that I, I'd set for myself a task that, well, a goal, not a task, a goal that the next business I got involved with, I was going to be a co-owner of. I needed to have a seat at the table. And, um, so that, you know, that, that informed some of, some, some of my choices around I2I Global. And then, um, we agreed to terms and I came in as a, uh, I earned in, uh, basically, uh, shares in the business mm-hmm. and, and then built those up. And then the, 
for for us, COVID um, was a yeah, it was a well, a defining moment in the business. And so, the if you're in international development and all the borders are closed and no more flights, and you've had mm. to repatriate all your professional staff that are all on deployment, and um, that that's an existential crisis to the business. And that's that's exactly what happened to us. So there was a, a couple of things that shook out of that for us, which are really defining moments for the company. And so uh, what would be some of those defining moments then? Uh, first thing first, um, at that time, uh, over, well, over 80, 85, 87% of the, of the revenues of the company were derived from DFAT, okay. from the Department of Foreign Affairs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you put all your eggs in one basket and, and COVID hits and suddenly you can't do international development anymore, then your business is, is really on the brink. So yeah, that was a lesson. So firstly, we needed to diversify and, and find and identify, uh, new sources of revenue super fast. So, so there's that. And uh, the other thing is just before we move on from that though, Darren, so identifying new sources of revenue predominantly within the Australian context or immediately looking internationally uh, for these other opportunities? Well, we had capable people with international experience in the development context. Mm -hmm. And so what happened is is from, from, from my point of view, relatively new as the CEO, but relatively experienced as an executive. Um, and then the COVID, it, it, you know, kind of shutdown happens and yeah, that's, and anybody who was in business you know, through the GFC and through COVID understands that the, the immensity, you know, just the all encompassing shock of it. And so we had to lay off a bunch of our staff. For no other reason other than we didn't have any certainty over those contracts which they were assigned to. So uh, that was that was really yeah, disheartening. That's a really sad thing to do. And then after a, a couple of days, really, uh, really, you know, in shock, because I was also chairman of a tourism asset at the time. Mm-hmm. And so we were having board meetings three times a week as we were trying to identify. And I'm talking about those early early weeks of COVID. Yeah, uh, mm. you know, we had guests. Uh, that were at this resort, uh, and we had to, you know, work with the public health authorities to get them out of there and to get them on their way home. We had staff that that lived at the resort, uh, so it's in a regional area in Australia, and you know, we had to make arrangements for this, you know, safe keeping of, of staff, even if they were living out there, access. So, yeah, the the, the shock of it was, you know, was was pretty unprecedented, and then in that. In all of that, I'm kind of going, oh my God, what am I doing with this company? It's toast. And and where I got to a few days in, there was I was thinking, hang on a minute. So we're an indigenous company. And if we're hurting, we're not special. Other indigenous companies must also be hurting. And if other indigenous companies are hurting, how can we help? So that same inflection point around that, that ethic of care kicked in. And I was thinking, okay, then, well, you know, what can we do? So then we went, uh, you know, because of the work internationally in development context and the work with the World Bank, um, there was a couple of things that I was, I was, you know, I'd had experience in. 
And I took a couple of those ideas and I went to one of our clients, which was the Commonwealth entity around Indigenous business. And I said, hey, have you heard any left field ideas about how to respond and help Indigenous companies? And they said, what do you got? And I charted that idea with them. And then in turn, they worked up the policy, they worked up the idea, and it turned into a $100 million facility to support Indigenous businesses. So that was great. And then we were invited to co-manage that facility and to deploy it. Mm -hmm. So out of that ethic of care of how can we help, it turned into a bit of innovation, a bit of adaptability. When we put it to the right people, they were then able to work it up with our support and that turned into to money. And then that turned into, okay, we need to, to implement this and we need a capability partner. And that was us. So, you know, that for me is, is, is a, an important story for the business because it captures a lot of our key values about who we are and, and what I ask our staff to do when they come to the company. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, that, uh, COVID, you, that initial, oh my God, what are we going to do? The sky is falling. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I would guess now looking back on that, you would probably in some respects thinking it was a blessing in disguise in that what it's enabled you to do in terms of recalibrating and, and moving the business forward in a different direction. Yeah, I don't know if I call it a blessing, Richard. It was pretty scary. <laughs> oh, it was at the time, that's for sure. There's no doubt about it. Uh, a, but obviously... saying? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Well, that's right. Like, you uh, know what? I, I probably would have been okay being as weak as I was before. <laughs> right. But, uh, <laughs> but, but you know, right. uh, you, you came to what is a realisation that a lot of businesses have, which is that if we're entirely dependent or almost entirely dependent on one source of revenue, if it's a, a client or a funding body or whatever it might be, and then the the world changes, um, that's a that's creates a lot of challenges. So having that diversification and, and looking at a much broader context has obviously been um, very beneficial for you now. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, they... Yeah, there's there's lots of latitude you could roll out and yeah, trying you know, almost kind of catch cries around this one on motivational lines. But um yeah, when 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 I look at what's important to to the company and and then how do we articulate that in our work and, and in bring value to it to our clients and customers, you know, I really I really I ask of our staff that we continue to focus and talk about the values. Mm -hmm. So we, we talk about our core values and how we're going to go about doing what we want to do. And then obviously with clients, you know, we really want to get the best outcomes for them. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, that that's linked into our values as a, as a company. And, 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 and sometimes that, that works great. Other times it's, it's, it's hard, but you know, we always want to, want our clients to understand that we really have tried our best. And so mm -hmm. if it's not worked, then it's not through any negligence, negligence on our behalf or any malfeasance. Um, and then really, you know, if we're going to work in this space of innovation, then you have to also expect that sometimes you try things and they don't go the way you anticipated, but you'll learn from that and you'll use that to help build, you know, what you do going forward. Definitely. And so sitting here now, I mean, COVID is largely behind us, if not entirely, mm. although mm -hmm. one of my staff members just told me today that she's got COVID. But, uh, you know, when you look out to the future now, Darren, you know, one of the things that you're excited about 
not only for eye to eye, but also for your own career. Yeah. Um, so last year we, as part of a part of our, you know, growing the company and it was always, it was always in my mind about our path to, to scale and profitability was bringing in investors. And so, you know, we were effectively a startup five years ago, and then you go through the inevitable pressures of growth. You go through those challenges of cash flow and the valley of death. You know, you go through those things and yeah, to grow a company to scale, to, to really go to those, that, that next level, you really do need to source investment capital. Mm -hmm. So we, so we did that, uh, last year, we re-arrived at terms last December and having access to that capital has really, you know, has been fantastic for the business. Uh, so we did our series A close in, in, uh, December. So we're working on now the series B raise for the business. Um, there's opportunities in front of us that we, we, uh, we're hoping to access and we, we want to invite investors to, to share our, our vision and, and then obviously bring you know, that capital so we can achieve that. I think people, you know, whilst the referendum, you know, that whole talk around Indigenous interest. I think that's all been happening and it's been, you know, it's been unexpected to some, uh, disappointing to others. But for us as a company, um, we sincerely believe that there are, you know, very much brighter Indigenous futures uh, ahead of us. Uh, we very much have that self-belief that there are Indigenous professionals which are going to go back and continue to make a difference with their own people. Uh, we believe that there is substantial commercial opportunity uh, unfolding on the lands and, and the waters of Indigenous peoples across Australia, and that we we very much want to be in a place to support those those Indigenous interests. So, you know, we know right now, I think the last number was 85 mines are in development across Northern Australia. Mm -hmm. So there's 85 opportunities from, you know, from, from mega projects on country. Uh, every one of those is an opportunity to create billion dollar futures for those indigenous people. So yeah, that's mining. Uh, we know that there's a substantial, a substantial increase in, in defense capabilities and activities, thanks to the geopolitical kind of priorities in Northern Australia. And they are also opportunities for Indigenous peoples. Uh, we know that in the transition now around our economy to renewables and and obviously pricing carbon pollution, uh, that creates opportunities in large-scale renewables and then the carbon markets themselves. And we understand that both of those require very large uh, acreage to make happen. Uh, carbon offsets and carbon schemes about, you know, re returning you know, sustainable land management practices or sea management, water management practices, and Indigenous peoples are the pioneers of that. So there's opportunities in those carbon markets and as there is with large-scale renewables. So there's there's four major industries. Um, the magnitude of, of the opportunity, I believe, is probably in the vicinity of $100 billion. Mm. And Indigenous peoples are standing right in front of those opportunities, and and it's part of our job to help them to walk through those those doors, and for them to 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 share a part of that prosperity. So, um, you know, just this week, I've been a bit long winded on this one, but just this week, 
the culmination of, of, of a lot of work within National Australia Bank um, arrived with an announcement around a, a commitment for a billion dollars uh, for lending and investment into Indigenous businesses. Now, now a billion dollars is a big number, and for just one of the banks to say, right, we're 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 going for this. Mm. And we're setting ourselves the internal targets and the KPIs to increase our lending to Indigenous companies. Um, we know that that billion dollars already is a larger number than the combined resources from those public sector agencies around Indigenous businesses. Mm -hmm. So the, the, this has always been the promise. The promise has been that the private sector already has greater access to capital and resources to support private sector development than the public sector. The public sector is always going to be constrained and highly competitive. And it's, you know, it's, it's not, it's not reasonable for us to expect that the public sector will be the leader in private sector development with Indigenous interests. So this for us is building that architecture to enable those resources now to flow into the Indigenous business sector. Mm. What's really fantastic is, uh, you know, with all of the uh, unfortunate uh, negativity in, in relation to our recent referendum and so on, to actually hear really positive, you know, uh, enthusiastic vision for the future, which, uh, you know, um, is a breath of fresh air. Very much a choice, Richard, very much a choice. Um, you know, we can, we, we could, we could focus on, focus on deficit and disadvantage and what we don't have, or we could just as easily turn the other way and, and look towards opportunities and what do we need to do to build? Yeah. So, um, yeah, and that's you know that's very much a self fulfilling prophecy, I think. Mm -hmm. and, in, and in business, I mean, think if we think about what we're we're trying to do in business, we're trying to realise market opportunities, or we're pursuing innovation, or we're we're seeing a, 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 an opportunity and we, we want to convert. Mm -hmm. So yeah, in business and enterprise, it's that okay then. Well, and even when people do see yeah you know, something that's missing. They quickly flip that into well. There's an opportunity to meet a, an unmet need here. Oh, for sure. And at, at the end of the day, as you say, that's the entrepreneurial spirit, isn't it? To uh, what do they say? To turn a, a, a sow's ear into a silk purse. I think is uh, is the old cliche. And <laughs> a couple of final questions before I let you go, Darren, because I'm sure you're very busy. I note from your LinkedIn profile, I mean, you do a lot of stuff, right? You, you, as well as being the CEO of I2I, you're involved in a whole heap of advisory groups and board roles and, and, uh, and different things going on, fellow of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, et cetera. How do you, how do you actually, um, manage your life? Because, uh, being a CEO in its own merit is a full-time, you know, very consuming job. How, how do you get it all done? Um, I mean, if you're passionate about something, then it, it doesn't take energy away. It, it seems to give you energy. So, mm -hmm. um, so yeah, being able to, to be involved with, with initiatives that I'm passionate about, um, yeah, there is substantial time management that goes into that. It's, it's no, it's no easy thing. Um, and then a, quite a bit of discipline around that as well, you know, got to mm -hmm. always prioritizing. Uh, saying what what's the top priority and and then dedicating the time that it needs to progress it and then it, yeah the discipline is uh, I'm excited about that thing but it's a lower priority at the moment I can't get to it so, yeah um, 
So there's that. I also I have to acknowledge I'm I'm very I'm very much the beneficiary of having great mentors around me, mm -hmm. um, and I seek out counsel yeah liberally, and I believe that that helps. And you know, for for our business right here right now as well, you know, have a fantastic board. Um, so uh, uh, it's a small board, but yeah, they they are great. They are great people, and and they as a as a CEO that. The relationship between the board and and the and the CEO, the chairman and the CEO, the chairperson, the CEO, is the critical one. And if that's if that's on solid ground, then um, it makes a world of difference. Mm -hmm. So it makes a world of difference. Um, yeah. So that, that, that I mean, I, I'm the, but I'm, I'm, the other thing, to be honest, Richard. Yeah, I'm I'm not perfect, and I make errors of judgment, and I drop things, or I forget things. You know. Or, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe I don't spend as much time with you know important people in my life at at some points. Yeah, so you're always adjusting. You're always going, oh, you know, what I've kind of overshot how much effort I've been putting into that one, and it's taken away from me having time with my my kids and my my partner. And so yeah, yeah. You've got to got to rein it back every now and again. Yeah, you know, it's not nobody's perfect, and yeah, we don't know what what's you know what might be great today might be out of whack in a month's time. So. Just for that willingness to to keep a, you know, a well a reflective, I suppose a, a reflective stance, and to you know to keep an open mind and to recognise that when things change, then sometimes you you have to adjust and change as well. Sure, which is obviously evidenced uh, in your response to COVID, uh, in terms of with I to I. Final question, Darren. So obviously very, very busy, lots going on. What 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 keeps your petrol tank full when you're not working? What do you like to do to relax and uh and have some fun? Well, that's a good question. Um <laughs> so I do I do well so I do like basketball. I still I still play basketball whenever I can. So yeah, still staying physically active uh, is something that happens. And so yeah. Um and I love food. So yeah, uh, that enjoyment from food and and then from from drinking as well. So, <laughs> well, so. I, I I feel you. You know, I love food <laughs> and I love uh, drinking uh, beautiful wine and so on too. The only there thing for go. me, you know, like a lot of people during that COVID period, I became very uh very slack and and uh, so I, the, it's the fitness side of things. It's that self care to make sure yeah. you look after the body because if you don't look after the body then uh you know it, it, it or being able to be as productive as you want to be uh can become Absolutely. challenging yeah well look darren it's been excellent talking to you i've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation i really Thank wish you. you all the very best with i to i global and uh Thank look you. forward to uh hearing your success stories to come thank you thanks richard Cheers, no worries man. have a great afternoon bye-bye Thank you for joining us on the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncoverthehiddenjobmarket.com to register your details. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.